As Pastor Wagner said, our regular pastor, uh, Pastor Greco, is out on vacation. He's also a bit under the weather. I think he and Deb both. So let's keep them in our prayers for their recovery. And I encourage you, if you're visiting for the first time, that you would come back next Lord's Day and uh, when our pastor will be back. But I encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible now and turn with me in it to the uh, 16th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. And please follow in your own Bible as I read in our hearing verses 21 through 26. Hear the word of the true and living God. Right after the time when Peter confesses the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God, we pick up the reading in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give In return for his soul. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you join me in prayer and pray with me and for me for the ministry of God's word. Let us go to God. Oh, holy fathers, we bow in your presence and hold your word once again in our hands, and as we have its truth set before our eyes and our ears and our minds, we do so, O Lord, in the consciousness that unless we are to experience in some measure the presence and the power of your Spirit, indeed, his mighty work to remove the scales from our eyes, the deafness from our ears, and the unbelief of our hearts, then what follows will be nothing more than an exercise in sheer futility and a waste of energy. And so we cry out to you, O God, for the gracious assistance of your Holy Spirit, that your word would come to us not in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And, O Lord, as we meet you in your word, Help us, Father, to be so directed as to reflect seriously upon who we are, where we are, and where we're going. 
We ask these things for the sake of your own dear Son, in whose name and by whose merits we draw near to you with these our pleas. Amen. Several decades ago, and I hate to admit that, but several decades ago in my younger days when I was attending seminary, our much-beloved and admired professor of homiletics, that's the science of learning how to organize and preach sermons. Hope I did okay in that course. Uh, He used to tell us, always preach from the great text of the Bible. Because then at least your people will have something. (laughs) What he meant was, no matter how bad the sermon turns out to be, if you've chosen a good text, the congregation can at least turn it over in their minds, reflect upon it, ponder it, and therefore they'll have something to sustain them throughout that day as well as in the successive days of the week to follow. I hasten to add, I cannot tell you how many times in my own experience I have taken refuge in the solace of that comfort. We do have a great text before us today, regardless of what follows as a sermon. Now that's not to say I have no idea where I'm headed, mind you, but I'm talking about the effect of it, whether or not it will make any dent or penetration into your armor. Uh, But if you have nothing else today, you certainly have a great text. If you're anything like me, there are occasions in life that cause you to pause and to consider just how fleeting and how transient our lives really are. I know that for some of our young people here today, you may not think about it. Then again, you may, but graduation is just around the corner. Others of you are preparing to go to college. Uh, Others of you are thinking about your career, what you want to do. I can remember when I was a boy, a young person, it seemed that grades 1 through 12 were absolutely the longest, most boring days of my life. And also it seemed to me that they were my most difficult and trying times of life as well. And throughout my years of grammar school and high school, I thought if I could only get out of school then I would be in control, that I could set the course that I wanted to pursue. I could lay hold. (laughs) I could lay hold of the joy of freedom, and happy days would fill up the rest of my life. I know that none of you have ever been so foolish as to think such things. But I would like to address all of us this morning, old and young alike, about how we're living at the present time, where we want to go down the road, because our text, I think, is one with which we should wrestle as early as possible in life. This is a wonderful and glorious text, and at the same time, it is very searching and solemn For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I think it's rather easy for us here in America to take for granted the affluent lifestyle which we enjoy, comparatively speaking, with the poverty of many folk in 
third world nations. Moreover, uh, it's very easy to take for granted, I think, the rather peaceful conditions, not always, but the rather peaceful conditions of our lives compared to that of refugees who are fleeing this or that area of their own war-torn nation. We know, of course, in the end, all of us know that in the end, we must all sicken and die. And after all, life on earth does not go on forever. But we thrust such thoughts from our minds, such considerations as long as we can. And we set ourselves to the task of achieving the goals that we want to pursue, to enjoy ourselves, to live a satisfying and a fulfilling existence, comfortable, pleasant, reasonably affluent, with all sorts of various opportunities and benefits. And in so doing, I think if we're not careful, we can fail to realize that the world at large is not at all like our own corner of the world. Elsewhere, it's a much more grimmer, sadder, more dismal place than perhaps we like to think. The world by and large is wounded and bleeding and dying. And yet if the truth were told, our own part of the world is likewise wounded and bleeding and dying. When you strip away the, the veneer of all of the facade, there's, we're in the same conditions. And I want to offer some considerations this morning from this passage this morning, from these two searching and solemn questions put to us by our Lord Jesus Christ here in the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. All too often we understand uh, you and I, even our corner of the world, to be defined and limited by the reach of our own experience, what we can touch and taste and smell and hear and see. And the truth is, of course, that our five senses are not the limit of reality. Reality cannot be measured by the yardstick of our own experience, what we can touch and taste and see and smell. And I suspect that there are a large number here this morning who have difficulty from time to time believing in the existence of God. And that's why I want to put up as our first consideration that it's absolutely necessary for us to understand that we live within the context of the unseen and the invisible. The context of the unseen and the invisible. Now, I know it's not right up at the forefront of your mind doubting the existence of God, else you wouldn't be in a place of worship like this this morning. But nonetheless, you regard perhaps it's good to be religious. You think, certainly, I want to be a professing Christian, and I do desire to maintain contacts with my roots with my family traditions, my background, perhaps the prevailing sentiments of my community in which I live. But at the same time, you know, it's the year 2019. We're on the brink of 2020. 
And a lot of water has gone under the bridge since those good old days when folk could with such ease and simplicity accept the existence of God and talk about the unseen and the invisible with the most intimate terms of experience and acquaintance. But in the last century, we've experienced the first and the second world wars, the creation of the atomic and hydrogen bombs. We've seen the so-called ethnic cleansings, wars in the Middle East, terrorism and terrorist, and discoveries and advancements in science that when we stop to think are rather frightening in nature. Moreover, theories have been established which demonstrate the unlimited vastness of the universe as well as its great antiquity. How in the world How in the world is it possible at this juncture in history to give any credence to the existence of God and to talk about the unseen and the invisible as though there were no problems in this area at all? Well, if you read, and if you read at all deeply, even in Christian devotional literature, you discover that the struggles in this area are not anything new at all, that good and godly men and women, even in the past, when troubles came, when there was, so to speak, a swelling of the Jordan and calamity struck, when even their most penetrating thoughts ran in directions counter to the teaching of the word of God, believing men and women then had their struggles as well and difficulties with believing in the existence of God, difficulties in believing in the invisible and the unseen. You may recall my having spoken in the past of that great Scott divine, Samuel Rutherford. It was said of him that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And one of his hymns, well, it really wasn't a hymn because he wrote no hymns, but it's a collection of sayings drawn by a later writer that he made on his deathbed. We have it in the hymn now. It's this one. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, which wrote our confession of faith as well as the catechism from which we um, quoted this morning. He was a great preacher. He was a learned writer, a famous university professor, a saint of God if ever there was one. Subsequent generations have commonly referred to him as the seraphic Rutherford because of his, he was angelic to those people. And he was regarded as such because of his exalted experience of God and his grace. But Rutherford on one occasion describing the great difficulties with which men and women wrestle and experience and difficulty in believing in the existence of God, 
Rutherford goes on to add these words in Latin, expertus locor, I speak as an expert. I know what I'm talking about. I've had these doubts as well. And therefore, I think in the light of all of the temptations and the seducements that you and I face in the world around us, also in the darkness that may still persist within us, things that would lead us away from God that dull our sensitivities, that cause us to think sometimes that perhaps we professed and believed and even experience, what we've experienced at first hand is not true. And that we're living in the dream world, a state of delusion, deluding ourselves and others as well. And therefore, you and I need to be reminded from a text like this one this morning, of those unseen realities which are embedded and presupposed in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Then in the second place, if what I say is right, that it's Important for us to accept the reality of things that we cannot see and that are invisible, then surely it follows hard on the heels of that, that there is an other urgency in the right ordering of our priorities. There is an other urgency concerning what matters to us most in life. What is it? For which you're going to give your life. What is it to which you're going to give yourself? In some respect or another. You're going to give your life for something. What will that something be? These questions of our Lord. Cause us to think in these directions. What is it for which you're going to spend your energies and talents and abilities that God has given you? While preparing to preach today, I thought of the story of a young man who in college excelled in virtually everything to which he put his hand. He was a school champion wrestler. He was a consistent honor student. He was an amateur poet a class representative on the student council. He was warmly admired by his fellow students. Indeed, he had at his disposal what seemed to be an unlimited number of natural gifts and abilities. He was one of the most promising students on campus. And then something happened in his sophomore year. The Lord touched him. Changed his life altogether. Turned him around. And he became convinced that God was calling him now to become a foreign missionary. And at age 25, he found himself bound for the South American country of Ecuador to take the gospel at all costs to some of the most primitive tribes that roamed the jungles there as they had for centuries. 
Many of his friends thought it was a strange thing that a young man with so many opportunities for success would choose to spend his life in the jungles among these primitive peoples. They regarded his decision as a waste of his gifts and abilities. And on January the 8th, 1956, he, along with four other missionaries, flew into the heart of the jungle there to an uncivilized native tribe. And as they tried to establish contact with the tribe, that those people, unprovoked, suddenly attacked them, slaughtered the five missionaries who were armed with rifles and who never fired the first shot in defense. And inevitably, one looks at that and they think, what a waste, what a price to pay for nothing. But it wasn't a waste. The wives of those five missionaries determined to pick up where their husbands left off, went back to that same primitive tribe, and as a result of their labors, many of the people in that tribe eventually came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But that young man, Jim Elliott, in his sophomore year in college, had to come to grips with these two questions which we face in this text. You may recall these words from his diary. It's been cited by many pastors and preachers. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see, Jim Elliott had wrestled and found the answer to these two sobering questions. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his own soul. Or what will a man give. In exchange for his soul. You know there is nothing wrong. With being successful. Nothing whatsoever. Indeed I think every one of us. Should strive to be successful. But the real matter to be addressed is this. What do you understand. By success. For some folk. That may very well mean material prosperity. It may mean becoming wealthy, having tremendous resources at one's disposal. As a matter of fact, having these resources at one's disposal so that one can advance and prosper the work of the gospel in the world. In other instances, success may mean something altogether different from that. But the great point is this. No matter what direction may be the one in which the Lord takes you, the priorities of life have to be established in order. And at the top of the list, there must be a firm, unswerving answer to these two questions which our Lord puts to us in this text. I have an idea that that may mean for some of our young people in this church entrance in the full-time Christian vocation. And don't look at me with that look of incredulity. God may be calling you. And you need to answer it if he does. 
Some of our dear young men may have a call to, to enter the ministry. Sometimes folk have the idea, you know, well, if you can't do anything else, then <laughs> you can become a minister. <laughs> and in certain quarters, I suppose that concept still persists. There was a time when society gave its ablest sons to the ministry. Is any composite of gifts too great? Is any amount of talents and abilities too much to be offered in complete surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ to do His will and His bidding? Is there anything more important in the world than helping people to discover the answer to these two questions that our Lord asked us in this text. Young person, you've thought about success and perhaps you've identified success with going and getting somewhere with property and prosperity, a large bank account, a reputation. Success for you may not mean that at all. It may mean turning your back on all of that and instead becoming a pastor of a small congregation somewhere and showing people what it means to hear the voice of Jesus in the scriptures and to respond in faith and obedience to him and holding them by the hand, helping them to live and helping them to die. Whatever it may mean for you, whatever your age, whether you're on the threshold of a new phase of life, going off to college, beginning a career, or whether you're much further along, whether you're in your 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s, maybe you've asked yourself some pretty penetrating questions and you're wondering, what in the world have you been living for and how in the world are you going to face eternity with what you've done so far? Listen to me. John Flavel, the great Puritan, was preaching in his congregation and there were some young people making light of it. And he looked at them and said, you may live in jest, but you will die in earnest. You will die in earnest. And I can guarantee you this. There is no one here this morning, barring the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will not die. Nobody who will not die. And think of crossing the river Jordan. And entering the gate and coming to stand before the Lord with nothing to say and no service that has been offered. I'm not talking about the eternal woe of unbelievers. I'm talking about the judgment of believers according to works. And I'm saying it's possible for one who is truly in union with Jesus Christ, a converted person, a believer to stand naked and destitute in that day and say, you know, I'm, I believe I made a commitment that I'm kind of like the dying thief. You know, I squeaked in through the door at the last moment. 
I had opportunities and privileges which I squandered because I didn't take seriously these two sobering and searching questions of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then in the third place, I want to remind you this morning as lovingly and tenderly and yet as clearly and forcibly as possible of the inestimable, immeasurable value of your soul. It is, as our Lord Jesus Christ infers from these two questions, impossible to put a price tag on your soul. We speak of soul sometimes, and I think we scarcely give little thought to what it means if anyone gains the whole world and loses his or her own soul. What will it profit that person? What is someone willing to give in exchange for his or her soul? Soul here is life. It is the real you. It is that which makes you tick. It's fair to say it is the immortal you, which nevertheless can suffer shipwreck and loss in the end if these two questions are not adequately faced and answered here and now. What shall it profit a man if he gain everything, be rich and famous and successful, read books, write books that are read by generations after his death, Paint a great picture that holds an honored place in the great museum of the world. Do something memorable and yet do nothing for God. Never, never stand before Jesus Christ as a humbled sinner saying, I have nothing to offer but take my life. Let it be. Consecrate me to thee. There's an interesting story of a French count by the name of Louis Esterfield. He was very much addicted to his possessions. And uh, he made arrangements for the disposition of his estate after his death in a remarkable, if not to say a very bizarre way. He arranged for all of his gold and silver and precious stones to be locked in a steel box and buried. And then he also ordered that a stone be erected over it over that box. And of course, all of this was done in secrecy so that no one would know. And on the stone were inscribed these words for all to see. Here lies the soul of Count Louis Esterfield. And of course, as people passed by that way, some would shake their heads in amazement. Here lies the soul of Louis Esterfield. I mean, after all, body is one thing, but soul? Some would laugh in derision, make mockery of it. But then one day, one day, a man came along, he read the inscription, sat down and pondered a while, and then he began to dig. (laughs) And before long, he came upon that steel box which he opened, finding it full of gold and silver and precious stones, and a note which read, You or my heir, (laughs) to you I bequeath all of this wealth for you 
and you alone have understood me. Count Esterfield identified his soul with what? With his possessions. All that he had. And you know what the consequence was? He lost it. How important things are to us. Gold and silver and precious stones. Houses, land, stocks, bank accounts. Even the name, a reputation renowned. But do you know what happens to all of that in the end? It really does. It may loom large on your horizon now. But I remind you of those unseen realities of which I spoke just a few moments earlier. And I can tell you that all of that, gold, silver, precious stones, if they are what matter most to you, all of that will perish in the end. But my friend, you won't perish. Not in the sense that you'll disintegrate and dissipate into nothing. But you will know what it is to suffer a loss that will last for as long as eternity itself because you will have answered on the dark side of these two probing and penetrating questions. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Let's pray.